0: Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have another incredible and informative episode for you guys. So sit back and enjoy this great episode we're going to have. And today, the topic we're going to discuss before we get to the many cognitively questions we have is going to be George Santos. I know some people may be wonderers, like, George Santos, is that really the most important issue? But, you know, it was all over the news over the weekend I have some unique takes on it that are different from the rest of the right, and so I feel that I it's worth discussing, because it's not just about George Santos, it's also about the direction of the party, and what type of political movement and, and force we want to be, and how George Santos represents that. So George Santos was kicked out uh, from Congress on Friday, he, you know, for... People are debating over what crimes, whether this was the right thing to do. But Santos got the necessary majority to kick him out, which was two-thirds of the House to vote to expel him. Over 100 Republicans voted to remove him. I think it was 105, but 114 Republicans, um, or maybe it was 112. <laughs> My mistake, it was 112 voter. Our Republicans voted for him to stay in Congress and he was removed. And he was the first congressman to have been removed for without a federal or without an, a conviction against him or with the only one who was not removed for siding with the Confederacy. There was about three congressmen back in 1861 who were removed for joining with the Confederacy. Uh, I don't think Santos joined with the Confederacy and he is was not convicted of his indictment. He's most likely going to be convicted of crimes, though. I mean, he faces a pretty serious indictment. He faces two different sets of indictments. Uh, the feds initially indicted him back in May with a lot of charges, and then in October, they pretty much doubled all the charges. And for uh, here's all the charges that are facing him he has. One count of conspiracy to commit offenses against the United States, two counts of wire fraud, two counts of making materially false statements to the Federal Election Commission, two counts of falsifying records submitted to obstruct the FEC, two counts of aggravated identity theft, one count of access device fraud, seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, two counts of making materially false statements to the United States. House of Representatives. I don't know how that's a charge. The last one because they all make <laughs> materially false statements to the United States House of Representatives. But uh, I say that's that's their opinion. But these some people are saying, well, this is a fe- you know this is a witch hunt. Really, like if you look at Santos's background, like this guy is a serial con artist. He's a serial liar. Uh, the crimes he's accused of are pretty bad. It's like him stealing the identities of his of his contributors. A lot of these are like Mayor grandmas and using it to spend on OnlyFans, gay OnlyFans. I want to add a Botox and spa visits. The you know, and he was racking up like hundreds of thousands of dollars in fraud from this, and you know, he was lying about his income. Some of it is like I don't really care that much. It's like him lying about his income. That's not so bad, or in the grand scheme of things. But like stealing money from your MAGA grandma contributors and stuff like that—that that is really bad form, and I don't think we should encourage it. You know, everyone on our side complains about grifters and con artists all the time, or they claim they do. And then when we have a genuine grifter con artist, for some reason everyone rallies around it because there was a odd thing when uh, Santos was removed. Conservatives online were acting like this was the greatest outrage the House GOP has done yet. You know, there's threats of primarying uh, these Republicans who voted against Santos. because, And it was generally coming from the hard right, I guess, or which one, whatever we want to say. Uh, well, some people may see the hard right as dissonant right. But it was coming from, you know, Magosphere, generally the most conservative ones. You know, the Federalists, I use the Federalists as like my example for this, And the Federalists had three separate articles, you know, tearing into Republicans for wanting to remove Santos. And I think the Federalists is a good barometer for this because, you know, a lot of conservative news sites, they either just focus on the news like Breitbart, Daily Caller. I don't think many people read Daily Caller anymore, but Breitbart's still there, you know, and is, represents the thrust of what people think. Uh, Federalist is a good idea of a good way of thinking, seeing what, you know, th- the conservative media consumer thinks about issues. It really tries to appeal to them as much and it has opinion pieces. So they had three separate opinion pieces like tearing into Republicans, like attacking Republicans. And a lot of their major figures were doing this. It wasn't just, you know, MAGA world types, you know, Sean Davis, who's associated with the Federalist, Molly Hemingway, uh, the libs of TikTok woman. All of them were just like going at it with the, with how terrible Republicans are to remove Santos. And there's a couple different arguments for this. One, biggest argument is the Democrats never do this. Uh, Two, Republicans need to defend their majority. And those are basically two big ones was that this is, uh, um, that those are why we have to stick with, uh, Santos I heard some other arguments from distant right people who had this they said like well you know Santos isn't really a problem because it undermines the legitimacy of the system to have someone like this in Congress so we need someone like this I think the legit the real legitimate reasons for wanting Santos to stay was that he was very entertaining it is a myth I found some of his stuff pretty funny it was getting tiring at the end but There was still some funny stuff he was doing. I mean, right before he was leaving, he did like some press conference about how there are only two genders, which he's laughing the whole time. He's not taking it very seriously, but it's a way of just like saying, okay, these uh, super conservatives are the only ones who are defending me. I need to appeal to them. So I'm going to do a press conference about how there are only two genders. And uh, it appeared to have worked because all those people were defending him. So uh, you know, it was a really good call. I guess everyone overlooked him uh, subscribing to, to gay OnlyFans accounts and using that from uh, his MAGA base, you know, stealing identities to uh, spend it on that. So they were fine with that. Uh, but yeah, it worked. And so he, he still did funny things. There was that time where he, for some reason, was carrying around a baby. Nobody knew who what baby it was. And then he began yelling at the press for taking photos of the baby. And it was like very funny stuff. And just like the outrageousness of all the charges and, and his brazenness of being a fraudster, there was like something entertaining about him. Now, but I feel like that's the only legitimate reason. Because anything else is just not legitimate. And I want to say this with the first. So we're going to go line by line with saying how these arguments don't work. One, Democrats don't do this. Uh, that's not true. They actually do do this. The they and I kept pointing out these examples. They had Al Franken, they had Katie Hill, they had John Conyers, they had Andrew Cuomo, and they are pushing to get rid of Bob Menendez. Now, one thing that there is difference between Bob Menendez and this does have something with the majority is they do that Menendez seat is a little bit more important in the one seat that it has, but it is a Senate seat. It is New Jersey. They would immediately get a Democrat in there. And they are trying to push him out. But, you know, it takes a little bit of time. You know, it took a long time for them to get rid of Santos. Santos, the first charges came in May. Um, I think they I'm trying to remember when they had the. they've had this is the third time they voted to expel Santos. Third time. So they've been trying throughout the year to do this and it just kept building up, building up, building up, building up, and then he got rid of him. Menendez, they may still vote to expel him because Democrats do not want him running again. You do have prominent Democrats who are calling him out. A lot of his charges are more serious for a senator because they're literally taking money from a foreign government to lobby for their interests. And so uh, that's much worse than you know, spend defrauding MAGA grandmas to uh, spend on fans. You know, that, that is definitely worse. But there are prominent Democrats who are calling. John Fetterman, you know, did a whole interview saying that what Bob Menendez did is worse than what George Santos is accused of and he wants him removed. And many Democrats are pushing for this. It just hasn't gotten the ball rolling. I do think it's not like they're rallying around to defend Menendez. No Democrat is rallying around to defend him. And even with the the power thing, it's like they can eat they'd much rather get a Democrat in there. And I do think that in the next year, there's gonna be more pressure to get rid of Menendez than now. I think he is also a more powerful figure. He still has, you know, friends aren't really speaking up for him, but he still has friends in the party and in the Senate who are willing to, you know, look the other way. They don't want to publicly defend him in the way that Republicans want to publicly defend and rally around Santos. But I think eventually Democrats are going to push against him. And there's a lot of Democrats who are calling for him to resign and wanting him removed. A lot of prominent ones. And they're saying that he's worse than Santos. So the argument that they don't punish their own, yeah, they do. They do. And some people were pointing out that like all the people I listed with, uh, Franken, Hill, Conyers, uh, Cuomo, they're all accused of sexual misconduct. And that's way worse. And it's like, Franken was accused of a prank. Like, what he got had to resign over is that there was a comedian on a USO tour in like 2006. And she was sleeping and he had like this photo taken where he's like, his hands are on her, on her, um, on her Kevlar jacket and it's like where her boobs are. And they're like, oh my God, this is groping. And it was like, he's a comedian and it was done this. And everyone hated Franken, but this is done at the height of Me Too. This is done when republic our Democrats were trying to portray Republicans as the pedophile sex pest party because of Roy Moore, and they were trying to get rid of everyone. And that's also why they got rid of John Conyers. John Conyers was actually accused of legitimate sexual misconduct. This guy was a black congressman, black powerful black congressman who had been sexually harassing and uh, assaulting staffers in his uh, office for years and years and years. So there was a legitimacy to it, but... They're like it's a it's a old black congressman. They kind of accept that. But with Franken, he literally got had to resign over a prank. It's so far worse or what Santos did is far worse. I mean, I don't I don't think anybody would have done would have cared about this in 2019 if he's accused of Katie Hill Uh, was accused of sleeping with her staffers, uh, (laughs) which they had just made a rule that you could do that due to Me Too and Gonyers and others. Like, uh, you cannot have sexual relations with your uh, subordinates. And she did, and she had to remove herself. And Cuomo, uh, the charges against him were, like him, um, uh, uninitiated flirting. So none of these people are like saying these are sexual assault. It's like one time like Cuomo kissed a woman without her permission. It's like this is uh, not really sexual assault. And this is what he had to this is what he had to be removed over. So actually Santos what Santos did is far worse than anyone. Maybe with the exception of Conyers who I think was legitimately accused of of sexual assault. Uh, So. Those are the people that are, that are bad. And they still removed them because they felt that these people were embarrassing for them and they were dragging down the party. And with Santos, Santos is somebody that Republicans have decided to make one of their heroes in Congress. And I don't know why. <laughs> I have no earthly idea why a brown gay uh, con artist, who was very clear he's a con artist when he was elected. I mean, all this information came out weeks uh, just a few weeks after he was elected before he was sworn in that he had lied about his whole background that he had been defrauding people for years he had you know his everything about him was just a lie about what he said his background is you know he would he had like prestigious jobs that he definitely didn't have and you know he's just like a, established himself as like just like a habitual liar and someone you can trust now, there's a lot of people in Congress like that, but uh, you know the fact that he's like really into defrauding people, is particularly defrauding the right, because that's who is contributing to his campaign and helping out his campaign, I think that made it a little bit worse. So, uh, I don't know why people were rallying around him in the first place, but it was that he just decided to become tight end with, with MAGA World, and he's hiring people from like MAGA World sphere and stuff, and as okay that they got jobs. Like some of the people who worked with him were fine, but he got them jobs and he was like going on, you know, Bannon and other people were promoting him. And that's what it is. And I guess he was like entertaining, but at the end of the day, he's like, not really our guy. He's not really our guy. And it's like, if you really want to make this guy a gay con artist, your uh, best representative in Congress. I don't know what to tell you. And there were people, there was, there was so many angry people in my mentions when I was talking about how I you know, said well, it's time to cut off uh, Santos. And there were people saying, well, he is much better than anyone else in Congress. And I was like, if you a gay, if a guy who's defrauding, stealing money from MAGA grandmas to spend on gay OnlyFans accounts is your best representative, I don't know what to tell you. And then people were like, at least he's not paying to kill Palestinian children. And actually, he supports unlimited funding for Israel, uh, just like every other Republican, minus uh, with the exception of Massey. Uh, are some, of, some of the other few are questioning how much we're spending. But really, it's only Massey who's voting against it. And yeah, you're yeah. I, so he's not really that good politically. So people just like making up reasons to be pro-Santos because they, uh, they felt really tied in with him. But we'll go on more on um, why it was bad to embrace Santos later on because I want to go through these arguments. So the second argument is that it hurts the Republican majority. It, you know, it's Republicans shooting themselves in the foot to please Democrats. Uh, well, there's a couple different things here. Now, it's true that that might be a Democrat into the office. I, it's unclear whether or it's unclear when the special election is going to happen. They're going to have a special election. Uh, Hochul has been saying she's going to appoint a, a Dem- who's the governor in New York, has been saying she's going to appoint someone to that seat and maybe that might be there for key votes and other things. But I, I think they have to thing, regardless of whether who wins the seat, and also the other thing is like Santos, the longer he stayed in that seat, the more likely Republicans were not going to take that seat. Now, Santos, you know, in order to fend off expulsion, he said, I'm not going to run again. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, I don't think he was going to win his primary, but he said, I'm not going to run again. And it's like, okay. Uh, we're not going to have it. But the longer he stayed in that seat, the more likely that Republicans were going to lose that seat in November. And not only that, but it was going to hurt like the entire Republican chances in New York. New York is like prime territory to keep more seats from that they had won in 2022, which they had won all those seats on the crime issue and how well uh, Zeldin did in the governor's race. And they should do well again because immigration is becoming a massive issue. They're sending them all these illegals out to the suburbs. So a lot of these areas that are very uh, went for Biden in 2020 on our battleground districts should stay within the Republican field. But there are problems in the fact that the entire congressional delegation is represented could be represented by George Santos. And it's like if you, and Democrats would love nothing more than Santos to have stayed in the seat. They really wanted to hang Santos around Republicans. And a big reason they were doing this vote is to show that Republicans are standing behind Santos. They want more Santoses in. They voted to keep him in. And it's this clownish con artist, this fraud, serial fraudster, who is now the face of the Republican Party. And it was going to hurt Republicans in New York. And it was going to hurt Republicans probably... In the congressional races throughout 2024, because they could just highlight this is the this is what you get with Republicans, this is who you get with Santos. And Republicans and conservatives are like, hell yeah, that's who we get. We love Santos. This is what this is who we want more of. Because this is our hero. This is one of our best congressmen. And he really was like turned into this like heroic figure. Out of like all congressmen they like, he has to be in like the top 10 of favorites of conservative media. And looking at the you know, strong responses from conservative media to this, you you conclude that this is like their favorite congressman, and I don't know if you'd be wrong in, in assuming that. So you had that opinion, but so like the majority, yeah, they do have a very thin majority. It shrink it by to I think from five to four seat majority, four or three seat majority, and they need every vote they have. But the problem is, is Republicans aren't even using their fucking majority for anything. Like, they can't pass shit. They can't unite about over-the-budget fight. And they're probably not going to unite over the budget fight. And a large part of this is from the House Freedom Caucus types. A lot of this discussion today is going to sound like I'm a moderate Republican, but it's more that I'm just anti-insane uh, clown party. And what the House Freedom Caucus is doing is, one thing is to note is that Republicans have don't have much political capital to get anything done. And the one thing they have any political capital get anything done is on immigration. Now, Democrats are open to talking about immigration, but they want amnesty to be attached to it. Republicans, if they stayed united, could force could force Democrats to give up on the amnesty pledge and accept serious border security reforms. And I have to admit, uh, and you have to know, that we're having 200,000 illegals come into our country every month. And those are just the ones we catch. And generally, these people are then released into the country. They're not deported. And so anything that uh, helps stem that tide is good because you know having 200,000 illegals come into the country every month is almost irreversible or is, is something that's it's a very direct effect on our country and our country's future. So anything that they can do is good. But Republicans can't unite around it because House Freedom Caucus is like, we want to cut spending. We want to cut spending. And a few people, uh, in responding to conservative media or some conservative influencer pressure, they also want, like, well, we want to get rid of funding for Ukraine. But on Capitol Hill, very few of these Republicans actually genuinely care that much about the Ukraine funding. They just say they do to please people on Twitter. And they're willing to give that up. But the the real thing that they care about is something that conservative media is not talking about. It's moved on from this. It's all these old Tea Party issues like this isn't cutting spending. Where's the spending cuts? We want to not pass a grand uh, budget bill. We want to have individual appropriations bill. This is violating our conscience. We can't allow this. And most likely, we're going to have this fight again in the beginning of the new year. And it's probably going to end up the same way. We're... Republicans are not going to unite over this. They're just not going to unite. And they're going to just keep passing temporary spending bills. Most likely. I don't think Mike Johnson is a very strong leader. Uh, They elected him. They picked him just because he was a nice guy. And he's doing the exact same as McCarthy. But unlike McCarthy, he's not a very good. um, He's not very good at twisting arms. And he was just picked as a nice guy. Now conservatives are criticizing him. And he's like well, this is what you wanted, this is what you wanted, and this is what you got, and he's also not as good at fundraising as uh, McCarthy is. So, uh, it's it's hard to say how um, Johnson was better than McCarthy. Uh, you know, he did release some more J6 videos, which is, like, the new thing that, like, all House Speaker wants to do to please, like, the conservative media consumers is that they released more J6 videos. Uh, the latest J6 videos didn't show shit. I mean, the only things that I've seen from it is that they mistook a guy holding up his... Uh, they mistook a... There was a guy who held up something, and they mistook it for an FBI badge. It turned out it was a vape pen. And the guy who held it up had gotten four years in jail, and he'd been identified in 2021 and arrested then. And I don't know if this is new footage that was just released from um, uh, Johnson's office, but I did see this go viral. There was... This is just some nor breaking revelations from uh, J6 is that... They have, uh, they're like, there's an Antifa flag there and this shows Antifa was leading it. And then they pan to, uh, uh, a, an office window in the, in the Capitol and it's holding up an America first flag. And they thought that AF stood for Antifa and that tweet got over 7,000 likes and got a lot of engagement. And so uh, I don't know if any of the videos that were released in the least, uh, helped, uh, undermine the media's j6 narrative but maybe some of it did. i mean it sort of added to more evidence because you saw that a lot of these people were being welcomed in by police they were just strolling around they weren't causing any violence a lot of those videos have still been there already but you know it's nice to see more of that video showing that like this was not a violent coup or insurrection this is really just people entering the capitol Without permission, but a lot of them thought they did have permission because the police were allowing them in. And uh, so, yeah, it does undermine that claim some more that these were dangerous, violent people. Uh, But, you know, we already have a lot of those videos and it's not completely turning into the smoking gun yet. But McCarthy would always do this when conservatives are complaining about him, and now Johnson's doing it as well. And the people on social media were pretty pleased by that. So, so what's going back to the, you know, the worrying about the majority, they're not doing anything. <laughs> unfortunately they should do something, but I, I, they're just not being able to unite. I don't think Johnson's going to be able to unite, So it doesn't really matter if they lose one seat or not. It's important that they still have the majority. And as long as they have the majority, that's important, but, uh, they're not passing anything anyway. <laughs> so it's like, whatever, as long as they have the majority, it's fine. Um, and what's more important is the impact on the 2024 election is that I do think you, you can't make an argument that having Santos as a representative that you put forward in battle battleground districts and saying that this is a guy that fully represents the Republican Party and what the Republican Party wants. It does hurt these candidates. It does hurt candidates in nearby districts. It hurts Republican chances of winning that district. And with how thin a majority the Republicans have. And also what's going on with these Southern districts where all these courts are ordering them to create a second black majority district in several states. They've made them do that in Alabama. They're making them do it in um, in Louisiana. And they're thinking about doing it in Arkansas and a couple of other states. It, that's It's very bad. They could lose all the, the majority that they have with these new black majority districts that courts are forcing down in the South. So keeping every seat is important and actually kicking Santos out helps Republicans retain that seat and retain seats uh, throughout and in, in nearby New York areas that they're putting a high priority on and possibly elsewhere as, as well. So it's, it's more important to help secure uh, a House victory in 2024 than it is to keep one seat, uh, an extra seat majority that they're not doing shit with. So that's my viewing on this. And so going to, um, so those are the two main arguments to go over. And so now it's to go to why it's bad to rally around Santos and how a lot of these arguments I do find uh, infuriating. There have been times where the Republican House has turned on Republican lawmakers for no real offense uh, or for much greater or for things that, you know, they shouldn't have uh, punished them for. And the most egregious example was in 2019, early 2019, when Steve King... uh, you know, had just won his seat against Republican opposition. They did not want him to win his seat. There were many conservatives who were talking about how he should lose his seat, including the Federalists. The Federalists in 2018 said he should lose his seat because he's a racist. And why was he racist? Because he was defending Western civilization, because he was strong against immigration, because he was meeting with nationalists in Europe like the Austrian Freedom Party. And they said that this guy's a racist and he's, he's tainting our party. We can't have this odious person like Steve King. Was he accused of any crime? No. Was he? And in fact, he was actually one of the most principled, honest, decent people in Congress. Like this is a guy who's not using his office to defraud the people. He is genuinely committed to his beliefs and principles. He's a little goofy. Uh, He's a little goofy, but you know, and he maybe doesn't articulate things in the best way, but he was very genuine, very honest. Very principled, and he was and he was a hundred percent committed to, you know, both the stuff that we care about on identity issues and the and what conservatives care about. He was arguably the most pro life congressman, yet the pro life movement abandoned him, didn't defend him because he was a racist. Now, in early 2010, he did an interview with the New York Times where he made a kind of an odd comment, which they then misconstrued to say he defended white supremacy, but in reality, he was just defending. Western civilization what he was saying is like oh they're saying all these things like white supremacy Western civilization it's all bad and it's like how did we get here you know that they're now saying all these things are bad it was an oddly worded statement but he was not clearly he was just defending Western civilization and he was attacking the left for calling everything they didn't like white supremacy Um, not well articulated but that's how they pulled the quote out and when that quote was made no one defended him no one defended him uh, once again, bringing up the Federalist because I always say this is the best barometer for conservative opinion, and I could even look at other websites: the Daily Caller, Breitbart. They were not running defend, uh, defense defense. Maybe Breitbart ran some milk toast defense of him, but nobody was defending him. None of these major conservative commentators were defending him on Twitter. Like of people who were defending him on Twitter, it was like me. <laughs> it was that was it, and I I didn't even have a hundred thousand followers then. I had like. 30,000 followers or something you know I and it was just like me and it wasn't like the the remaining alt-right dissident right counts were there they were defending him uh maybe like uh some of the other ones like Nick and some others were defending him uh at that time out uh Fuentes um I, they would have he may have just not been something that was on his radar but there was other; those were the type of people who were defending him. It was none of the big mainstream conservative commentators that were defending him like they were defending Santos. And as I said, this Federalist ran an article about how Steve King should be punished for his racism uh, at that time. And he lost his committee assignments. He lost his committee seats. And this was essentially a way of ensuring he would not secure election in his Republican primary. Is that the Republicans you know kneecapped him to ensure he lost and he was not accused of defrauding his his donors to spend on porn he was simply just standing up for western civilization didn't articulate it maybe the best way possible but he was fully punished and conservatives were fully in favor of this and so that was really egregious now we could argue that if this happened today that conservative media would rally around him i think that's true i think they would rally around him so this is just a sign of just that conservative movement is a lot better than it was just four years ago. Or it's almost five years ago now. Um, when King got kicked out. Or when... Would not get kicked out, but he lost his committee assignments. And that was essentially expelling him and ensuring he was not going to win his primary. And he, was, he surely enough was defeated in his primary. But there have been numerous other examples of them trying to punish people. I mean, Paul Gosar was censured for simply just sharing a meme video. And, you know, conservative media didn't rally around Gosar either. They did not say that this is like the final straw. Like Republicans, we're done with Republicans. We're primarying every Republican for censuring, uh, for allowing uh, Paul Gosar to be censured. And, I mean, one part of this is that Republicans didn't have the majority at the time that he was uh, censured. And he was also removed from his committee, assignment. So this actually happened in 2021, not 2022. But Republicans basically said, like, oh, well, you know, Republicans sort of defended him, you know, but they, they didn't really put up much of a fight. And conservative media didn't give a shit. You know, they didn't give a shit. In um, large part, it was not. So it was more of a Democratic defended effort. But if you once again going to The Federalist, <laughs> which is my uh, go-to website for assessing conservative opinion— they didn't have a single article about this. <laughs> so it's like, uh, okay, you know, they, they didn't care about this. But like, you know, Santos, it's like rally around the troops. We're priming the entire Republican Party for not defending George, uh, a, a brown gay con artist. And it's like, what what are you guys fighting for? So I would say this is like if you're looking at past examples it's it's not quite there, and I and I know that there's also there is a third argument saying that you know we shouldn't punish our own when you know when they're not acute, when they're not convicted of something, and that we should have a higher standard for what gets them uh, kicked out. But you have to realize is that most Republicans who are kicked out are punished for their statements. It's generally over political statements. It's not over their. It's not over crimes. Like the efforts to have punished Gosar. Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene have just been over their statements and views and opinions. It has not been over them defrauding people. It's not been over <laughs> Boebert giving an over the over the pants hand job at a Beetlejuice musical. It is over their statements and opinions, and. All those lawmakers deserve to be defended in that case because that's primarily what Democrats and establishment Republicans want to get rid of people. But when it's crimes, and these crimes are something that you shouldn't defend and are something that are morally repulsive, like what Santos was doing, and maybe you should say, okay, uh, innocent until proven guilty. Okay, we have the presumption of innocence, We are not going to kick him out until he's convicted. But he was most likely to be convicted. This wasn't turning into a massive embarrassment for Republicans. And it was probably going to hurt them in the 2024 election. And so they just cut their losses. It's no big defeat to have him gone. So we're now going to jump into what he represents, these tendencies within the Republican Party. And why I think people like him so much are... Maybe unintentionally like him, but there's something uh, deeper that is saying in their infatuation with Santos. And Santos is definitely, if I'm looking for a lawmaker who represents the insane clown party uh, meme that I've talked about, which, which the Republican Party is turning to, which is just this complete clown show, all about entertainment value, all about... Uh, you know, looking distasteful and appealing to the lowest common denominator. Sometimes they promote good stuff, but it also, at the other times, it's um, it's very um, off-putting to uh, college-educated whites and respectable people. I would say Santos would be the ultimate example of this. He absolutely is the ultimate example of this. And people... Uh, and by having him as like your one of your star conservative fighters, and this is somebody rallying around, it really emphasizes that yes, the Republican, the GOP, is turning into the ICP. There's a couple other examples. I've always talked about Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene as also other examples of the ICP. Is that they're both like uh, the one difference between Santos. Is Santos is at least smart. <laughs> Santos is also intentional is also a lot funnier. Provides a lot funnier content than Boebert and Green. Uh, Boebert and Green, especially Boebert, is definitely besides. Uh, she might even be dumber than some of the black lawmakers. I think she is. She is definitely the dumbest Republican in the Congress. Uh, and it's only like Sheila Jackson Lee and some of these other, uh, Frederico Wilson and people like that. That's the only reason that she's not the dumbest. Or, you know, that's not saying much. Uh, MTG is just more kind of a crazy rather than stupid. I mean, compared to some of the other congressmen and lawmakers and all the other thing, like Marjorie Taylor Greene has a lot of cringe aspects and I don't like having her as representative of my political beliefs, but she is also the only one to propose these interesting bills. Like she proposed like an immigration moratorium. She's always been the one pushing for impeachments against Mayorkas and Biden and And some other things, she does bring up some ideas. Uh, Some of the ideas aren't so good. Like she is the one lawmaker to endorse national divorce, which is, uh, as uh, most of the dedicated Greer heads know, would understand that that's stupid. But you do have this ICP uh, problem with the Republicans. And the biggest problem with Republicans is losing middle-class, college-educated whites. Now, some of these people have just gone full libtard. They've gone, they're you know their wives are watching CNN and MSNBC all the time. They got pink pussy hats. Uh, <laughs> pink pussy hats. They're uh marching in the resistance, you know. They've got re- uh, ridiculous bumper stickers. It's yes, it's very stupid what these people are doing. But that's not all middle-class suburban whites. You know, there's a lot of just respectable people, you know, who have still have conservative tendencies, you know, they don't like uh, big government, they don't like wokeness, you know, they don't like a lot of stuff. But they're embarrassed by Republicans. And some of that is Trump. And as a Trump supporter, uh, I don't think we should change that. But a lot of that is just like downstream of like what people are from Trump. Because the thing about Trump is Trump had a bit of a clownish aspect. But Trump was also very serious. And Trump was also smart. And Trump You know, there was this carnival aspect to Trump, obviously. I mean, like, look at the rallies, like, look at the type of feeling. And there was this entertainment value to him, which I think was more of a benefit because it drew in so many people and made politics electrifying and energetic. And it created this bond of loyalty uh, of those rally goers, of those Trump supporters to their leader, Trump. And that's why he's such a powerful leader. And that's why he's so dominant in the Republican primaries, that they cannot break that bond between him and the voters. And so there is that aspect that it works with Trump. And Trump, unlike some of his imitators, he is very serious about his politics. And his politics are driven by the identity issues. He, If you look at his political agenda, you know, word by word and line by line, it is what we want. And he's actually quite moderate on a lot of issues that helps Republicans win over independent voters. You know, he's much more, uh, some of my listeners won't like this, but he is much more reasonable about abortion than his opponents. He is much more reasonable about foreign policy, which I think all of our listeners would agree with, than all of his opponents. This is the one, Trump is the only one I am 100% certain of, would not start a war If he becomes president, even with Iran, even though there's all these people around him who want that war with Iran, instinctually, he's a non-interventionist. He's a realist when it comes to foreign policy. And he always wants to work with peace and work with world leaders on the level that they're at. And he's uh, that's what he's doing. And so I think that that's uh, I think that's and that's an important part about Trump. And so he has like serious political issues, you know, on immigration, race, all these other things. And. His imitators aren't. His imitators I don't think have this instinctual baseness or keyedness like he does. They are just there to be entertainers and to adopt any issues that they may think uh, will get them elected. And they don't really have the intelligence that Trump has and they don't really have the serious level of charisma that Trump has. Like Trump does combine like clownishness with seriousness. Very few people are ever going to worry about MTG like initiating fascism or dictatorship. Liberals, even though they know that there's this clownish aspect to Trump, there is a fear around him because there is a fear that there is something serious about them that they have to worry about him. With MTG and Bird and a lot of the other clowns, they just view these people as clowns. There's, you know, not that much harm coming from them, but there is that serious level of Trump. But the problem with, and I've talked about this in my ICP article, is that Trumpism without Trump is not going to be, which in the past people thought it would be like Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance. It'd be these, you know, rather boring, but, you know, they're sort of respectable, but they're, you know, they're uh, they're respectable adherents of Trumpism. But it's not very exciting and not very thrilling what they're articulating. And I think that there's, you know, I would say that's mostly good. Um, there's some things I would like JD Vance to improve on, and same with Holly, but they're better than what was came before. I think Holly is a little bit worse than than Vance because Holly, you know, Holly is you know supporting union strikes, which you shouldn't do, and and voting. He voted for Lena Khan and who's this horrible commissioner for Biden that's uh, trying to impose wokeness on companies and all this type of stuff. And they're but it's. The archetype that they represent, I think that's fine. But that's not going to be your leader type because it's, they don't have the charisma of Trump to, to unite those people. But most people are just a clown show without the politics. It's, it becomes the primary focus is the clown show, which is what George Santos is. George Santos was wildly entertaining. He was a good public speaker. He was good at media appearances because this is a con artist. He is very good at persuasion level. I mean, he's convinced like hundreds, if not thousands of people to part with their money to him despite being a fraudster. Uh, so he does have charisma and persuasion tactics, but it really is just a clown show without the politics. There's some people I worry that could be like that. Um, you know, I, I worry that some of these figures out in Arizona. I like Carrie Lake, so I don't want to put her totally in that category and I think she's articulating for our positions, but I do, I don't, I do have skepticism about how deeply she believes that because she was pretty liberal just a few years ago, and now she's, you know, uh, a Trumpist. Which I'm glad we have people like that, and she's incredibly charismatic and she's very articulate in arguing for these positions. But I do have some skepticism about um, her commitment to these ideas. And there's some others like the. Um, The guy who's running against Blake Masters, Abe Hamada, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, (laughs) Hamad, or whatever, Uh, there's like some, he's like Muslim. He's, uh, yeah, he he is Muslim, or he he doesn't really uh, claim what he is, but he comes from a Muslim background, and, but he is just like full on um, the clown show. He does articulate, argue for some good policies, but it really is just kind of, like the clown show, minus any uh, real politics. And then you had Doug Mastron, who was actually genuinely committed to his beliefs, but there was very different from Trumpism. You know, it was was full on embracing this low, um, really goofy carnival aspects about conservatism, you know, with like having a rabbi blow a shofar at all rallies and stuff. It was like very off-putting to you know, college-educated whites, and that's why he got destroyed in the gubernatorial race last year. Uh, but he was actually genuinely committed to it. But Santos represents the true. what really could happen, is that all these guys who are just like serial clown artists, who are just looking for a way to get elected, and they turn themselves into Trumpists, and they're able to do that because they fully embrace the clown show aspect of Trumpism and ditch the real identitarian aspects about it, and then it's just full-on ICP. And conservative media loves this, because if you look at what conservative media is promoting, it's just all, as what I argued in the article uh, that I wrote a few months ago, it's all about, you know, entertainment value, it's all about, you know, trying to own the libs, which is generally good, but sometimes they're not really quite owning the libs, you know, it's like a deeper care about Bud Light than it is the Border. And as long as you, you know, go to conservative media and you see what issues are motivating them that day, whether it's drag queen story hour, whether it's an entertainer saying something that's stupid or, you know, there's some stuff that's like serious, like the Chiefs fan who was accused of having blackface and conservatives rallied around it. I think that was like good that conservatives rallied around it, but. I do think that sometimes they take those, like, frivolous stories and they turn that into the most important issue. And that's really what conservative media consumers care about, like the conservative entertainment complex cares about more. And as long as politicians are, you know, talking, you know, it, a politician can vote for amnesty, but as long as he talks about Pizzagate, you know, they'll be loyal to him forever and for a lot of these people is that they care more about Pizzagate than they do amnesty or opposing amnesty. And I do think that's a, that's a little bit of a problem that we have within our political sphere and others. And there's just the the temptation for con artists, too, to exploit the movement and to, you know, rob people of their money. We do... there There is, like, a big trend within the broader right to attract con artists. I mean, if you look at people... I mean, grifter is abused and overused in our side. It's just, like, everyone's a grifter. Like, I'm called a grifter every day, which, like... I'm not selling you... Well, I am selling you IQ supplements. <laughs> but those are general... Those work. And those are proven to work. But, you know, you look at what all these... Uh, it is overused because, like, anything... If you say anything that people disagree with, they're just like, you're a grifter. Because it's, like, just one of those words like gaslighting, which, you know, that kind of fell by the wayside and other things that have just become uh, prevalent. But there is, like, an actual grifter thing. There is, like, these people who just, like, lie to you who are just trying to sell products to you, who will just tell you whatever you want to hear, and it's like the solution is to buy this actual supplement <laughs> or actual like health program that they have that's a lot of money, or to get into a pyramid scheme that they have. You know, I've been very positive about Andrew Tate, uh, relatively uh, to other conservative influencers, And mainly that's like, I think that him reaching like 13 year, 14 year olds, like young teenagers. uh, We don't have many people like that. And generally what he promotes them is largely good. But there is this con artist aspect to him because it's all about like getting people into a pyramid scheme. You know, how he made his money is like getting these cam girls to, you know, rip off people and stuff like that. It's very unseemly. It's very tawdry. And... You know, a lot of people are critical of him, but you do have a lot of Andrew Tate types throughout the right. And it is because that the right does attract salesman types and salesmen are what drives the economy. It's what's major part of America. But there is a P.T. Barnum aspect to salesmen is that a lot of them are trying to sell you bullshit and rip you off and just take your money and dupe you. You know, it's a sucker is born every is every born every second. It's like thinking that every person is there just a to be exploited by this person and to take money from them. Santos is a perfect expression of that. And so you do have these um, unseemly car salesman types, used car salesman types and snake oil salesmen who come in and dominate the right. And as long as they promote, you know, a white pilled message and they're like, we will win by the shit that's proven not to work. And and enter my pyramid scheme, people were like, woo, we love our con artists. We love being conned. We love being defrauded. And there's so many people who defend a lot of these uh, con artist types on our side. And that's really what's articulated with like Santos. Like I think a part of it by rallying around at Santos and saying, this is our guy, this is our hero. You are really saying, we love con artists. We want more con artists. We want to part with our money to fraudsters. And I don't think that's quite the message we should have. I really do think, and so those are the two aspects I don't like. It's the clownishness, and it's the con artist aspect. Both of them are tied together. You know, P.T. Barnum was both hosted, you know, his own type of clown show, and he was also defrauding people (laughs) as well. And so it is this P.T. Barnum aspect, which I think a lot of the right just wants, is that we do need to reach people and engage people and get people excited. And that is part of being entertaining and charismatic people having that. But unfortunately for a lot of the right, we are attracting people who are entertaining and charismatic who don't care about these politics. And their main goal is just to obtain fame and obtain money. And so they'll just say whatever it takes to make money and, and fame. And as long as they're white-pilled and positive, like people will celebrate them and and you know, falling over them, and, and and all this stuff, and our side is just easily duped. I mean, it, that's another problem. Is like our side is easily conned. Like every there can be ridiculous conspiracy theories that people will propose, like the Demar Hamlin body double, the war in Ukraine is fake, all these scheme, all these things that people would just like inherently believe because they want to believe it and some salesman, used car salesman type is telling them to believe this because they want their, to get their money, our side would believe it. And our side gets very angry if you try to correct this stuff because they want to be lied to. They want to be duped. They want to live in this delusional world created by the con artists, that popular sphere. And so that's a, that is a real problem because instead of creating political power, it's just creating like a, an industry where people can take your money from you pretend that it's going to uh fight the libs and it's not it's just going to their <laughs> to spend on gay only fans accounts and i do think this is like an issue i mean when the alt right was a thing in 2015 and 2016 we were really it, the alt right was really into attacking conservatives for you know conning their people you know they would point out all these Guys who would just have these uh direct mail um fundraisers and they would just like it you know scam all these people out of the money it's like uh, the republic is a threat. you must donate now, and all these guys would make money and and defraud the people that they're going after the ordinary conservatives and the alt right was very harsh on this is very opposed to this this is one of its main critiques of conservatism you know alt right's dead, but a lot of this um New right, which has several different meanings, but you know, the new right, which encompasses a lot of different people. Now we're just like, we need to dump, we need to be, we need to advance and exceed those old con artists and grifters who are running conservatism and be even bigger grifters. And this is what the people want. And it's too many of our leaders are just out there to make a buck off you and exploit you. But as long as you, they're offering white pills about stuff like our people seem to be fine. They uh, unfortunately, a lot of our side is very gullible and wants to be conned. And I, I think it will hopefully change over time. But I do. That's a big problem when I worry about Trumpism without Trump is that it really just becomes the the con artistry and the carnival minus the real commitment to the politics. I mean, the politics are are getting more advanced and notice. Than ever before, and we can see the changes. Like looking at the Steve King case, like I don't think Steve King, you know, they would have they would have not been able to remove him from his committee assignments. Um, You know, what big reason they were able to remove him is that Democrats, you know, had just gained the majority. But Republicans said, you know, uh, Republican leaders said, "We're not going to defend you." To him at that time, but today, and conservative media didn't defend uh, Steve King. But if Steve King happened today. Conservative media would rally around him. Republican Party would have to defend him. And so there are positive steps that are happening within the conservatism. But I do think with all the positivity that's going on, there's also the clown show could just take over and be the primary element. While the politics, the identity issues that are gaining more notice and more attention are secondary to to the clown show. And that's one worry I have if, if Trump departs from the scene. Because the clown show is here... To, the ICP is here to stay, uh, whether Trump wins or not. But I think if Trump wins the election, it has the ability to move the party in a more America-first identity direction. You still... But you're still going to have some of the clown show, but there's still going to be that policy focus. But I think if Trump like is in jail or something... People just imitate the carnival aspects without the identitarian aspects, and that would be a terrible combination. So that is my that is my talk on Santos and others. Uh, I am going to write an article about this, <laughs> so to fully you know put my words into uh, article form. So we will have an article about this uh, soon this week. So be on the lookout for that. So that will uh, condense all my thoughts that I've just gave and this 50-minute or so rant. So now we're going to go on to the Cod questions. We've got a ton of Cod t- questions today. So as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cod option at Highly Respected's Substack. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So we'll first start off with K-Max. He's got two questions today. He asks, uh, the first one's about the Gavin Newsom-Ron DeSantis debate. Did show you where the system wants us to go? A far left, Newsom versus controlled opposition, and DeSantis. In your view, could these be the two candidates for the 2028 election with Newsom winning? I don't think it shows the system wants us to go. I think it just... DeSantis is so desperate for something to push him forward that he convinced Newsom to do this. And I think Newsom wants to get his name more out there. And he likes the idea debate. And I think he felt he could best... DeSantis. And so they had this debate on Fox News, and Fox News one of the ratings. And so that's really all it was. I didn't even watch it. I felt there's no point to watching it. Because neither as Newsom said at the beginning of the debate is that neither one of us is going to be the 2024 candidate for our party. And that's true. So I would agree with that. So what's the point of this? So it's like two governors debating and they had their own little talking points and such, but I didn't think it was really that. Could this be the two candidates for twenty twenty eight election? Twenty twenty eight is too far away to know who the hell's going to be there. Actually, I don't think Desantis will be the twenty twenty eight candidate. A lot of Desantis's problems were exposed in this primer. He lacks charisma. He's extremely awkward. He's extremely dependent on conservative media pretending he's this great. Caudillo figure that's going to save the Republic and save the Republican Party. And in fact, he's just like a strange person who doesn't, his political instincts are driven by his wife, which are generally not correct. I mean, his advisors were telling him like, don't attack Trump, defend Trump. That's what the base wants. And all polling shows, it's like Nikki Haley's uh, campaign has admitted is like all our polling shows that anti-Trump attacks do not work. Um, club for growth has been trying to do anti-trump attacks they're like all our polling shows that none of our lines work it's better to defend him look at how vivek is doing our vivek is doing compared to the rest of the field is that you know the reason why he's you know he's like a political neophyte and he's nobody really knew his name and people can't even pronounce his name he's doing so well as he strongly defends trump all the time Desantis, based on likely his advice, advice has felt that he needs to start attacking Trump, and then his online shills are just like you have to do this, and it's hurting him in the polls. But you know, he it's an extremely online campaign that's just dependent on Twitter, and they've even like complaining how conservative media is turned on him because you know conservative media is admitting that Trump is the person and. I'm more and conservative media has moved on to Nikki Haley. So now they're like, conservative media is against us. But it doesn't matter. Ron DeSantis has all he needs. He has his boots and his complete lack of charisma. So, no, I don't think it would be the two candidates. In terms of like what the system wants, I don't know if that's the real question to ask. Because it's just like a debate. You know, I don't think the debate was that important. And... I didn't watch it, and we're all going to forget about it this week, so that it even happened, even though DeSantis's team was showing the debate as, like, proof that DeSantis is rising in the polls, um, so I don't, I don't really think it was very important, and uh, that's my view on it. I don't, it is 2028 20, candidates, I mean, right now Newsom is pretty strongly positioned, but it's a long time away. And a lot can change from now into 2028. And there's going to be a lot of Democrat. They actually do have a really good roster for 2028. You know, they have the black governor in Maryland. They have, I mean, good roster for them. <laughs> not for us. Is They have Josh Shapiro in, in Pennsylvania. I know Republican uh, conservatives are not going to like him, but Democrats would probably like him. Uh, you're going to have... Gretchen Whitmer, you're going to have a lot of different, and there's could be some people emerge from this election that could be in there. So it's going to be a very competitive race. And I don't, Republicans, I have generally no idea what could happen. Um, I mean, there maybe, maybe Trump doesn't win, win, for some reason doesn't win in 2024. Maybe he runs for a fourth time. <laughs> I don't think that would happen, but maybe. I have no earthly idea what the Republican field would look like. So, uh, the one thing I'm confident of: Newsom could still win in 2028. I'm pretty confident that DeSantis can't win in 2028, and he. This is why he ran this time. I think also Trump is going to be very, and that world is going to have a long-standing um, grudge and uh, and hostility towards um, towards DeSantis for as long as he's in politics. And I don't think that's going to go away. I could be wrong, but I don't think it will be. So that's my views on the debate. And so I'll go to k Max' second question, which he asks, Scott, an article you wrote a little ways back stated that American white people will embrace an American-first pol- nationalism and immigration restriction, but not explicit white identity politics like James Kirkpatrick advocates. Is it your belief that it's not just an American white people, A Seattle, Portland white is so different from a Mississippi and Alabama white that the bridge cannot be closed? What is the closest we could see on a mass scale? Anything or American Renaissance tier, or more just Tucker Carlson, Elon Musk tier? It can go no further even if whites are oppressed for being white. I don't think it's so much like the differences between whites. I mean, some of the the Seattle, the liberal whites, there is a big gap between like, you know, if you're living in Seattle, you know, uh, you know, working in the tech sector and You know, you have your beliefs and stuff. You're very different from someone who's living in rural Mississippi, white living in rural Mississippi. Well, that's not just quite it. It's the fact that like the rural whites in Alabama, Mississippi don't even have that strong of a white identity. It's that they view themselves as Americans. And, you know, whites is just like, you know, how they are. I mean, they'll recognize it. I mean, rural whites will recognize if you're something different. And so will like even middle class whites, but maybe they won't be so explicit about it. But it's just how their identity works. And if you ask them what their primary identity is, they might just say their state. Uh, They'll say their country. They might say their religious denomination. Not many people would say white. And... Uh, so, so that's one. Th- that's the th- real thing that I have to say is that they just don't have a strong emphasis on it. As like the poll I always bring up, you know, as a Pew Research poll, it showed that every other group ha- believes that the racial identity is important, it, either extremely or very important. Among whites, it's only 15 <laughs> believe it's believe it's important to them. So the thing to remember about whites is that a lot of them just don't think of themselves as anything. They're just like, well, I'm an individual, and they're like. I guess I'm accidentally white. And this is even true for a lot of conservatives because a lot of conservatives are like, I don't even see race. And they're like hardcore you know, right-wingers and they'll say, I don't even see race. And this could change over time. I do think that a lot of the CRT in schools, the fact that they'll be denied jobs uh, later on, the racial quotas going on in corporate hiring, and just like the education level and the media, anti-white hate in media, that could change it over time. Then they'll see themselves as white. But for a lot of them, if they're asked what's their bigger identity, whether it's American or white, they would say American. And that would be true for most conservative whites uh, as is. So a lot of what you have to build around with a white identity politics is going to be an American nationalism rather than something uh, separate from uh, a white identity separate from America. And that's even how it works in Europe. I mean, in Europe they generally think of their ethnicity or national nationality as their primary importance. Rather than, you know, and white doesn't quite work in the same way that it does in in America, mostly because, you know, they don't have this long history of having non-whites around them. With in America we have blacks and Indians around us, and that's how we built up the American white identity in opposition to (laughs) blacks and Indians and not being them. In Europe, they don't really have that. But they, most of their identity was built up about not being this other ethnic group. It's like Germans built up by not being French and Polish. And French built up by not being German and English, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. It built up on these rival powers that were there. And they're like, we're different from these neighbors that we're constantly at war at. And this we have a different language, different culture, different traditions, different history. And that's what defines who we are. But that ethnicity is still very important to them, even among a lot of the liberals that we have. And uh, I, I made this point in some of um, in my podcast last week is that there is a silent majority of, among Europeans that gets this these things. They realize that the new immigrants are completely different from them. They cannot be part of their nation because their nation is still firmly rooted, has strong ethnocultural roots. And there is something about being French that is more than a piece of paper or something more than uh, being a German that's more than a piece of paper. And I think that's even shared by even a lot of liberal and left wing Europeans, but maybe they don't vote that way or they're afraid to say it in public. Well, I think with American whites, uh, they will think they're like, well, as long as you're an American, I'm fine with you. It's It's often too much times it's emphasis on the piece of paper rather than your ethno-cultural roots. So that's really what I'm getting at. It's that, you know, for white Americans, their national identity matters more than a separate white identity. And all white identity politics has to, you know, acknowledge that and work with that in order to gain any type of political power. Now I'm moving along to questions from Mystery. Mystery asks... Any thoughts on Oswald Spengler? Why did Maloney cuck so hard? Last, on the topic of white Americans' lack of racial identity, how much of a role does blank slate ideology play? Do you think that if the average white normie was red-pilled about race, IQ, by trustworthy authorities, they would naturally develop a sense of racial identity, or would it just be another isolated fact to them? I'll address the last one first because that goes along to it. Uh yeah, they, a lot of white Americans, white Americans in general just view themselves as a blank slate because there is a a strong sense of individualism in America. And a big part of American identity, especially coming here, is that you ditch the past when you cross over. You ditch all the past traditions to become to come over to America to remake yourself. And a lot of times that those traditions and culture have not died, but they often die within the second or third generation. And even with the, a lot of the new immigrants, they it's a really artificial uh, links to their old identity. It's a way to just signal against the white mainstream that they have. But they're still like enjoying rap music. They're still getting tattoos. They're still living out a very American lifestyle. They're speaking in an American way. But then they'll be like, I'm a proud Palestinian or I'm a proud... Uh, you know, Venezuelan or something. You know, they'll like really be into their uh, identity to signal against the white mainstream, even though they'll be dating white guys or something. You know, this, they'll still be into that. So some of it is, but whites generally believe in the blank slate ideology the most, and we and we don't really see like a random white person we see on the street is like you know. Or a racial comrade of some sort, which I think even with like blacks and Hispanics, especially if they're in a very white majority uh, setting, they'll like instantly see like, oh, this guy's like me. I'm going to link up with him. While whites will just uh, not really do that. <laughs> Maybe in sometimes if they're the minority, it could happen. But even at times, like uh, you won't see that. Like I've been in some like Hispanic restaurants where like I'm, it's like me and another white guy who are in there. And it's not like we're like, nodding our heads like, hey, it's a white guy. Good to see you. You know, it's just like we're focused on our own thing. Uh, so it's something, um, do, if the average white normie was red-pilled on race IQ, uh, probably they would develop some sense of racial identity, I think. If they actually understood this, I mean, and they did have a sense of racial identity pre-Civil Rights Revolution, And even into the 70s, I mean, there were still and there's still, you know, elements of that. If they, you know, learn their kids are going to be bused, you know, they develop a racial identity real quick. They might not be explicit about it, but that's part of it. And that was very much apparent in the in the fights over busing in the 60s and 70s, that racial identity. It's like we don't want these people in our neighborhood. We don't want to go to their neighborhoods. We want to be separate. So I think under changing circumstances, they could get a sense of racial identity. It just would be different than I think what a lot of American white nationalists have proposed as their identity and how it is. It has to be something in keeping with American national identity. And American national identity would be primary to it. Uh, It would just add that racial element uh, to that identity and acknowledge that it's important to it. So on the other questions, thoughts on Oswald Spengler? Very positive. I like Spengler. Um, I need to do an IQ supplement on Decline in the West. But yeah, I'm very pro-Spangler. I think for a lot of these right-wing writers that people always recommend, a lot of them are not really useful for reading. I think Spangler's still useful for reading, even though he was into... Uh, he kind of denied a biological uh, racialism. Uh, he was into Franz Boas and like these other hacks, left-wing hacks. And he's like, oh, this is it. But he was also still believed that the... White race was important and that they need to preserve their civilization. So he's a little bit all over the place. But I think Spengler is worth reading. I'm very positive about him. Um, but I would answer that, that question fully in an IQ summit. Uh, why did Maloney cuck so hard? That is a great question. Some of these leaders... Uh, one thing I always say, the question that maybe is most important is, what is their view on Russia? And how much they can do on Russia, if they're a huge hawk against Russia, I think it's something to really raises a red flag, or it should draw our skepticism. Like I'm not the biggest, you know, as people have followed this. Like for, I think for Americans, like I don't, I'm, I don't really think we should have like be really strong for Russia or Ukraine. I think we should be very strong for a peace deal and acknowledge that. Ukraine's gonna to have to cede large, you know parts of its country to Russia, and that's just a fact of the matter. But I'm not like really, really seeing as Russia as our savior or anything. But I think in Europe, I think the ones who want to work with Russia are much better and much more reliable than the ones who want to uh, follow the Washington DC line on Russia. And I think Maloney was like that. And I also think with Europe, they are having a lot of this is promoted, like a lot of the immigration big boost tourism stuff is promoted by this like, oh, they have to let in people in because they don't have enough workers. We can say that that's like bullshit and such, and a lot of it is bullshit, but a lot of these people are letting in these guest workers into their country and wanting them in. Even Orban and Poland were doing that. Uh, I mean, the one, the one silver lining of that is that it's under, they're not wanting to permanently keep these guest workers, and they also don't want the flood of African boat people and stuff to come in and and take over their country. And a lot of the migrants that are having are Ukrainians, which is fine, I think, in the grand scheme of things. You know, they are white people, and for they're also very similar to their neighboring Slavs. So it's like Poland welcoming a bunch of them in it isn't that big of a problem. Uh, but with Maloney, yeah, I think it's that's driven by that. It's also the fact is, is that these individual countries don't have sovereignty. They're dictated by the EU. Like these courts, like the European Court of Human Rights denies them the ability to deport people. France just deported somebody against the wishes of the Court of Human Rights. And, uh, you know, that's a big deal. But with the rest of Europe, you know, it's very hard for them to deal with the boat people on their own. And in all these matters, because they're so dependent on the EU, and the EU is what leads these countries around. Now, if France and Germany had a keyed government, they would have a lot more power to do things than, say, in Italy or Spain or in Poland or in Hungary. But even in Eastern Europe, you know, they've been very effective at keeping those migrants out uh, because it's land. But I think it's a little bit easier from that because you know. It's a land border. It's their land. They build a fence. They build a wall. They have troops there. You're not coming in. I think it's a little bit easier to defend than the boats because the boats, international water, there's all this issues over who gets to dictate this. And there's all these battles between who takes them in or where to send them. And also North Africa doesn't want to take these people back. And so there's all these questions about it. And so another big problem with Europe is that unlike America, America can force any country to take these people back. Because all these countries are dependent on us, and they all don't want to lose their foreign aid, and they're also afraid of America. Africa is not afraid of Europe. <laughs> Africa just will say, fuck you, taking these migrants. Uh, Niger, their new government, which was uh, taken over by a coup, is a pro-Russia coup. They're now ending their migrant agreement with uh, Europe, and they're going to allow more migrants to come up uh, and come up to europe now to go to north africa and then go on to buy boats to uh, europe now and so a lot of these african countries are just like fuck you and then all they really have to do is like plead and say oh we'll give you money please take them back well america would be like you're taking them back or otherwise we're taking your money away and trump was able to do that with central american countries and others who would not take their country their their people back he's like you're taking them back Uh, There's no there's no question about this. You are. This is end of story. So they don't really have as much power to do things as they can in America. But that's still not arguments for Maloney. I think Maloney could do a lot more. And I think if you want to say why Cuckmore, more, I think it is for Europe that their stance of whether they want a reasonable working relationship with Russia or that they want to follow the GAE line on Russia that's uh that's a good way of assessing whether you can trust them or not so i would i would continue i would i would say that that be a good barometer for assessing uh, european politicians so the next question comes from mark it's actually two questions it's kind of both related One, is it true that the post-2017-18 dissident right is much less white and more diverse than the old, old right? What is the reason for this change? What is the reason for this other than the fact that these ideas have gotten more popular? So this is a great question. I'll start with the first one before reading the second one. It is, it's hard to actually say why it is. I think it is easier for saying what the mainstream right is. With the mainstream right, we are winning over more Hispanics. And I think it's in part that a lot of Hispanics are assimilating to rural white working class. And also a lot of the reason is that the Democrats are perceived as the pro-black party. And I do think that Hispanics really resent that. The Black Lives Matter stuff really put them off. Some Hispanics were into that, but a lot of others were alienated from that. And the fact that the Democrats are just the obvious pro-black party, that they're more inclined to vote Republican. And I think as for Hispanics, as they're moving to more rural areas, they are adopting the political, the politics of those around them. Uh, Whether that's, like, the good idea that they're moving to these areas and voting for Republican is another matter, but I think that does explain some of the shift towards the mainstream, right? And also, even for the Teanos who live along the border, they really don't like all these illegal immigrants coming over, and they do see the Democrats as the open borders party. So, uh, a couple different reasons, and also crime issue, and I think also a lot of them are... Some it's on an individual level. They're opening businesses. They don't like taxes, more inclined to being Republican. So I think that can explain why Hispanics are going from you know 27% Republican to closer to 40%. Now for the dissident right, it gets a little bit more convoluted. I think that is also part of a lot of the browns and non-whites are assimilating to America. And they feel... It's a, it's a type of outsider reaction because the dissident right is very much an outsider movement. Even though a lot of it is a part of uh, celebrating the core population, the core people who made America, the people who are going to come to these ideas are outsiders to the mainstream. It is somebody who's seeing there's something wrong with what's going on in mainstream America. And I think for a lot of the people who are most easily to see... America's racial dynamics and to see a lot of these inconvenient truths that are hidden by the media, it and mainstream society, it is going to be people from a more of an immigrant background or something of that sort, rather than someone whose like family has been here for generations and generations. Because a lot of those like, you know, if you're, say, a standard white suburban kid, you know, you play football and stuff And you're just like been an insider your whole life. You're gonna not question what's around you. You're gonna see this as like, well, you know, I don't see race. Remember, The Titans is my favorite movie. Meanwhile, like somebody who's just fresh off the boat from, I don't know, Iran. (laughs) We'll say Iran. They will instant instantly notice the racial dynamics. They'll see a lot of the absurdities in our society. A lot of the. Uh, Things that are very different from how they grew up, or even if they're like, you know, children of, of immigrants and maybe that they, you know, spend all their life in America, they definitely would see the differences and be more coming at this from a perspective of an outsider and more willing to perceive these stuff. Because if you adopt these beliefs, you become an outsider. As you're someone looking in, or outside looking in, <laughs> that's the way. I'm sure some of the listeners may correct how I said that, but you're the one, and you're able to perceive these things that the insiders aren't. If everything's going great in your life, you're benefiting from this. You enjoy rap music. You're you're like my favorite. I love Lamar Jackson and all these great black athletes and stuff. And then someone like tells you that like there's something you know. Fundamentally different between you, between blacks and whites and that whites built this country in the core part of the country. They'd be like, oh, absolutely not. Even though they may have 25 ancestors, direct ancestors who fought in the revolution, they would just, you know, not perceive that because they're an insider within mainstream American society. And so that's part of it. But even, you know, that's maybe a positive way to spin this. But there's also a way that a lot of these like Hispanics are getting into this. I think it's also a perception of, uh, of a way of signaling their anti, I don't know, whether, for lack of a better term, I'm just going to say this, but anti blackness, and it's a way for that. And I think also a lot of these people are in a, in a flux of identity crisis. It's like, you know, they were born and raised in America. You know, they don't really have any connection back to the old country. And they're, it's a way of trying to find an identity. And by adopting something, this outsider edgy identity that's associated with a distant right it gives them a way of anchoring themselves and it's also you know it's that they feel that there's something wrong in mainstream american society and it's a way to express that so i could maybe say that those are some of the things and it's just like online is that online people can adopt identities that they would have never done pre-online you know pre-online you, you there's probably not going to be very many people who are going to be into uh, wanting an orthodox Romanov restoration in America. But now online, people can create um, the ideologies and states that they built in their favorite real-time strategy game. And so a lot of this is just the development of online, is that ideas that would have otherwise not reached certain people, now they're reaching tons of people through uh, the means that we have. So I would say, yes, it, it definitely is. how much more diverse is a question? I do think it is much more diverse because if you, even if you look at some of these groups, I would say these are like the really bad optics groups, but there are groups that are very, very uh, non-white, like Goyam Defense League. There's a lot of brown people in their protests. Uh, National Socialist Florida, which is one of my, favorite, which is one of these funniest groups, I think it's exclusively Hispanic. The NPR did a report on them, and they interviewed their leader, and the guy like claims to be only half Portuguese. And they he's got a ski mask on; it's even a, a school skull, skull mask on. And they show like his you know eyes, and it's like dark brown, and he's got pitch black eyes, like beady black eyes. And he's like, "Uh, yeah, I'm just uh." half Portuguese. is was like, I-, I think you might be a little bit more. Ha- I think half Portuguese might be <laughs> only white, white you might have. But, uh, I think that group's like almost all Hispanic. So there are examples of this and you can even see this online with a lot of people like, you know, I'll get replies and somebody's like, I'm Hispanic or, you know, I'm half Asian or some sort. And you definitely have a lot more of those people, but, um, uh, it's still majority white. I just think it's a, a little bit funny and uh, of how many uh, non-whites are in this. So even the brown, you know, they talk about the browning of America. It's even happening to the distant right. But to what extent it's a matter of debate because there's not like real studies on this. Um, the only real study you had is like the Gab user is that Hispanics, m- Hispanic males are disproportionately overrepresented among like Gab and Telegram users. So that's the one bit of evidence we have that it is much more diverse is that they're only like um, uh, less, a little bit under 20% of the population, yet I think they're like 30% of the Gab and Telegram users, if I remember from the study correctly. So that's the one evidence that it's becoming a lot browner, uh, or much more non-white. But even But that's like offset... Uh, is that there's still very few Blacks into this. I mean, we do have, like, you know, some Blacks, but I think if you looked at any studies, it'd probably be, like, 1%, maybe. (laughs) They do rise to the top. I mean, you do have, like, people like Candace Owens and others. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think it's... Hispanics are the ones who are getting into this more than anyone else. For some reason, South Asians, too, and some of the uh, menas... But even menas in some certain groups, it's like whether they're white or not, like Maronites and Armenians. You know, I would I would say that they would be counted as white, but that's a some people would strongly debate against that. But yes, it is uh, much more diverse and uh, a lot more immigrant background. So, no, going on to the second question, which he actually cites someone who can actually prove this is uh, uh, shows this is similar to the first question but more mainstream. I'm directly quoting this guy Blair Nathan. Blair Nathan, I think he has some good posts. Uh, I think he's. Part something, um, I don't know what the part is. Somebody told me about him before, but he's uh, part something else. Uh, I, I don't want to quote on what it is, but it's um, it would count as uh, as non-white. I mean, I think he's at least half or majority white though. Uh, but anyway, he's a he's a decent poster. Uh, I just want to... That does just kind of show the, the type of people who get into this stuff. And he says... Uh, I've directly quoting this guy, Blair A. Nathan, about why he thinks that Hanani and others like him get away with racial realism bot while being mainstream figures, basically. And the quote is, Hanania getting away with HBD Real Talk may be partly a function of the heart sellers who are now much more numerous than blacks, concluding that the subject of America's original race relations melodrama are not as magical as white people think they are. In a biracial America, Hanania's ra- realism would be impious. But in a world full of online clips of Hispanic Asian and Hispanic shopkeeper shopkeepers being confronted with urban vibrancy, maybe that's changing. I think Hanania himself is an Arab. He is. So again, he's not trapped in this giant to kill a mockingbird morality play LARP that governs the way white people talk and think about black people in the context of American history and civic religion. Obviously, I'm not a fan of the Great Replacement, even if, if as in this case, it results in the relaxation of some taboos. My point is that just that people who are neither white nor black have their own agency, and they may impact American life in many ways than, than their prog sponsors did intend. And then uh, Mark goes on, I don't know if I fully agree with this because polls show that many non-black minorities, while disagreeing with the excesses of magic worship, worship such as reparations and defunding the police, still generally agree with the average normies' view of American relations. I do think that many non-black minorities are confused by more goofy magic worship and don't understand it, even if they believe that blacks suffer racism like average whites, but people like Richard Hanani and many others like him are unique and certainly not the norm for Americans, be it white or non-white. Do you agree with the thread above, and would a more hard seller right and less magical America and strengthen or have no real impact of the civil rights regime? I'm slightly skeptical of this because even though a state, uh, oh, state California. Is very non-black minority state with virtually very few blacks, 55% Hispanic, Asian, 5% black. It is still run by crazy leftists, many of whom surprisingly still happen to be white, despite the state being minority white who worship magic and give blacks disproportionate representation. And so, yeah, I actually, I don't know if it's strengthened, because it'd be hard to strengthen it more. But actually, I'd be inclined if it would end, no. I would be inclined to, say, slightly strengthen the civil rights regime. And he made a good point by bringing up California. California is, uh, you know, afro lottery is still very strong there. They want to have reparations, even though they have a very small black percentage of the population. And blacks still demand, like, their Senate seats. Like, you know, even though they have a much larger Asian population, Newsom had to appoint a black woman to replace Dianne Feinstein. That he was obligated to do that. He was forced to do that because he had appointed a Hispanic to replace Kamala Harris, and they're like, "No, no, 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 no! That's supposed to be a black seat." And they were so pissed off about that that he said, oh, "Okay, the next seat will definitely be a black person. It will definitely be a black figure." And he had to he had to get make sure it was a black woman. It happened. All right? I don't know if it was actually specifically a black woman, but it had to be a black uh, leader. Um. So he had to this, and so they're still doing insane stuff, and they're still teaching like BLM stuff. So, and it's the civil rights regime is strong as possible in California, despite it maybe not benefiting Hispanics and Asians. But I think with Hispanics and Asians, as long as it doesn't directly make them suffer or have negative impacts on them, they're just like, whatever. As long as we get our piece of the pie, that's what we care about. Now, reparations could if they actually did them, which actually I'm more skeptical of because Democrats like Newsom backed away from the cash reparations uh, recommendation that was in uh, California's reparations review. And one, they can't afford it. I obviously can't afford it. And I think it's also that they know that they would piss off Hispanics and Asians that they're paying for reparations as it would not just come directly from whites. They're not going to have like a direct like white taxation The that would not survive in court. That would also be, unfortunately, that could maybe be popular one day, but it's, it would not happen in, in this decade and maybe next decade either. And so Hispanics and Asians would have to pay for giving blacks repar- reparations. And they'd be like, what about our reparations? And all these other groups demand reparations in response. Like Indians want more reparations. Hispanics want to find some reparations. Asians want rep- reparations. Gays want reparations. And so, it, it, you know, it's a never-ending cycle that they have to accommodate. And our government can't afford that. And so they're backing away from cash reparations towards more just like, we'll have greater investment in blacks uh, communities and we'll just call it reparations. And so that's really what the thing is. But uh, to Blair Nathan's point, I think it is true. And it is also a lot what I said with uh, my answer to question one. It's like, yes, they are not. Uh, immigrants are not as uh, brainwashed by this to kill a mockingbird, these these movies that they have, Mississippi Burning, these morality plays about American relations. You know, they're... Remember, The Titans is not their favorite movie. <laughs> and so they're uh, they're not as into this stuff as whites are. While whites, like normally white Americans, are like, oh man, that's so true. I don't see race. And they're get really into this stuff. I, I don't... I think over time that's going to change. But even though they may witness this bullshit, they still are able to exploit the bullshit. Because I think with most... South Asians, they understand the bullshit. They see through the racial dynamics, but instead of challenging it, they exploit it to maximum effect. They become the wokest people imaginable. They become the most avid left-wing advocates. They want reparations and stuff because they realize that this is the path to power and that they have a certain degree of intelligence and ruthlessness that a lot of others on the left don't have and a lot of black leaders don't have. And they're able to become bigger leaders on the left. Now, some people do challenge it. Like I think Vivek is generally understands race probably more than any other candidate besides Trump. But I think even if you got him privately, he would actually say be probably more forthright and honest than maybe even Trump. I don't think Trump's bothered by it. And Trump actually gets it, but maybe he's not Uh, As clear in articulating it, but Vivek is one of the few that actually China challenges. Even though he wants more immigration, he is it is built around (laughs) anti-blackness the immigration, and it is owing the fact that he went to a, a diverse school and got his ass beaten or he got beaten up by blacks at the school. You know, I think he got thrown downstairs or something. You know, and you know he and he was not brainwashed with "to kill mockingbird" stuff, and he's like, "Why am I getting attacked?" So I think he. He does present a vision of it weakening, but he is a minority within this community. Most of the Indians who want to gain power in our society and Asians, they go full in on the woke stuff and the left-wing stuff. And if you want to look at an example of whether it's weakening or not, just go to California where it's as strong as possible, despite not having that many blacks. So that'd be my answer to the second question. It would slightly strengthen slash have no real impact. It would, the civil rights regime would still be strong in a, more diverse America because they would just rally around being anti-white and that's what unites the Democratic coalition. But there are some uh, dissidents from that among Hispanics because I don't think Hispanics are getting much of the spoils as others are. So that is the question. We still got two more questions. Uh, I'll be probably a little bit quicker with some of them. They've been some really good questions, though. And Dollar Bill, he has this question. It's like, have late-night comedians always been insufferable liberals? I suspect that in previous decades, Entertainers like Johnny Carson and Dave Letterman had writers who may have been liberal, but their shows were not outright rallies for the Democratic Party. I have a friend who watches Stephen Colbert's show, and I noticed his political opinions have become more aggressively lip tarded even more so than when Trump was president. Our late-night comedians propagandizing the American people into becoming leftists alongside Marvel movies. <laughs> and he said, I will not ask you to do an IQ supplement on the subset since watching this material is basically intolerable if you are not a hardcore progressive partisan. And The question, have they always been insufferable liberals? No. Uh, You can go back to the 90s. Jay Leno was fairly conservative, and he was still there into the 2000s. He mocked uh, Bill Clinton a lot, a lot. And he also mocked a lot of George W. Bush's uh, enemies. And a lot of late-night comedy really made fun of these far-left liberals who are opposing uh, the Iraq War, and maybe not in the best way, but opposing the Iraq War, or maybe making wild claims about George W. Bush. And even The Daily Show, which was always more liberal than late night comedy, would make fun of them. They would be more equal opportunity offenders. And Conan O'Brien, who was like fairly liberal, would also make fun of liberals and stuff. And Johnny Carson, obviously. David Letterman was probably the most liberal from what I remember. Uh, Johnny Carson was trying to be nonpartisan and stuff. And he made fun of both sides. And, And Jay Leno also carried that on. Letterman was probably the most liberal of them obvious that you could see uh he always had a i don't know if a counterculture way of it but he was always being like the alternative guy when he was um hosting he was supposed to take over johnny Carson's slot but then they gave it to jay leno and then he moved over to cbs which uh, jay leno was on nbc and then they brought in conan o'brien but they were definitely much, it was less political. No, the shows are way, way more political. And that, and that goes even for Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live had a lot of brutal segments on Bill Clinton and Democrats and liberals in the 90s and 2000s. But it just it's really more of a Trump effect. I think in Trump effect, they've forced all these comedians to go more left-wing, Liberal over time, even like Jimmy Fallon, who's not, who does not want to be political, they forced, they've pushed him into being political. And Colbert has always been political, but he's become even more so. And even if you look at the comedy that they do, it's really in depth, like stuff about politics. It's like, uh, like I've seen some um, Jimmy Kimmel segments, and Jimmy Kimmel's like making fun of like the staff, the specific staff members of of george santos and other people and i remember that in like the 2000s they would not get in the weeds about politics like you would not have to read politico and the hill articles about this stuff but i guess like all their viewers are watching msnbc and cnn all the time and they're much more aware of this stuff than they were in the 2000s so it's definitely been a trump effect and even Kimmel, you know, I, I can't really say what he was mostly like in the early 2010s because I wasn't watching much of late night TV. But Kimmel, when he was hosting The Man Show with Adam Carolla, was very politically incorrect. A lot of very conservative humor. And now he's like a full on libtard. So it's more just like a, an example of the comedy world and what direction they're wanting to go in and what they want from media like that. and. I don't know if it's propagandizing the American people, because I think if you're like a centrist or an independent, you're just not watching late night comedy anymore. It's like you really have to be a deranged MSNBC viewer to even enjoy this stuff. And most of the time, it's just really bad humor and not funny at all. So that is my opinion about it. Yeah. And before uh, Trump, it was very much apolitical, not as political as it is now. And so it's gotten a lot worse. And now we've got our final question, of course, from New England Refugee. And he sent a screenshot of the fiscal burden of illegal immigration. and It's going to cost over $150 billion. Uh, I think that's per year. For total fiscal cost. And he's like, what happens when we can't continue the Gibbs?" Probably in our lifetime, we are going to run into a major fiscal crisis in which most, even most U.S. citizens, will not get government benefits. Will the immigrants leave if the welfare spigot is turned off, or will they riot and go full Mad Max mode? Uh, I think a lot of them would leave, but also a lot of them would riot. It depends on whether you know how strong the Chavez movement, I say, you know, an American Chavez movement is. Is like I wrote in an article earlier this year, is in America. If there's like a strong left wing movement and they start turning off the Gibbs then there will be a lot of massive social unrest like a la the Black Lives Matter riots of 2020. But if there's not quite that movement there, a lot of the illegal immigrants, if they're not, welfare is not there and the jobs aren't there, they leave. That's always been the case uh, throughout his, uh, American history. If there's like there's not any work for them and they're not getting any welfare, they go back to where they came from. And you're even seeing that now with some of these migrants. You know, they came to these cities and they're not even getting, you know, they're complaining about their shelter and they're like, OK, it's much better back in Pan- in Honduras. So we're just going to go back to Honduras. And so it's already happened. So I think if but I would say it's it is worth turning off the welfare spigot to immigrants because most of them would leave, as we can see with migrants. There's so many migrants now that these cities can't afford to provide them what they expected you know, and they expected like a nice hotel and everything. And now that they're not getting it, they're going home. So that would be my answer to that. But that's, of course, a question that's worth more consideration and we will discuss further. But that is it for Highly Respected today. We had a great episode. So we're going to have a great article later this week and a fantastic IQ supplement. So tune in for that. So until next time, stay respected.